So, how was the first day of school? It was fine, I guess. I don't know. Do you ever look at someone and wonder what is going on inside their head? Did you guys pick up on that? Sure mm -hmm. did. Something's wrong. We're gonna find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. <clears throat> a perfect play call for the Chiefs, and here it is. Mahomes has hit his last eight. Looking to the end zone for the win! He caught it! Game! Chiefs to the championship game! These two guys know each other! Unbelievable! This, this is just unfathomable! The Bills had won this game! It was over, Justin! <laughs> Uh-oh, she's looking at us. What did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Oh, oh, please. Please. You gotta be kidding me. Have you ever looked at someone and thought, what is going on inside their head? Your spouse, your parents, your child, your pastor? What is going on inside his head? Why is he talking about the Chiefs again? Doesn't he know that we're Nebraska Cornhusker fans? We're not Kansas City Chiefs fans. Besides, we're all secretly cheering for the Cincinnati Bengals to win today because of their head coach, Zach Taylor. Have you ever wanted to read someone's mind? Staying on football for a moment, how many of you wish you could have read Scott Frost's mind this season? How about your boss? How many of you have ever wanted to know what your boss is thinking? Maybe you've wondered, what is going on inside that person's head that I interact with on Facebook? Why did they post that comment? Why did they share that article? Maybe you're wishing you could peer into the mind of a government official, like the president or the governor. A lot of people make a ton of money and a lot of clicks trying to do that. Whether they succeed or fail is debatable. But the reverse is also true. Many political campaigns and administrations spend gobs of money on polls trying to decipher what is going on in the mind of voters. Have you ever looked at someone and thought, what is going on inside their head? Have you ever looked at the person of Jesus like that? What is going on inside his head? Have you ever wanted to read Jesus' mind? Have you ever read the stories about him and wished you could just catch a glimpse into his mind and to see what he is thinking and feeling? I think we're prone to believe Jesus is some sort of stoic or emotionless individual, when in reality, that is likely the farthest from the truth. This could be because of really bad Bible movies, but it could also be the result of the gospel writers. They're not novelists, and we shouldn't expect them to be. 
No one conducted interviews with Jesus after any of the crazy things he did. There wasn't a documentary crew following him around and recording behind-the-scenes footage. There were no press conferences afterwards to allow reporters to ask him questions. We're often just not told what is going on in Jesus' mind or how he is emotionally responding to certain situations. But every now and then, we are. Jesus, what was going on in your mind when that Roman centurion asked you for help, but he told you you didn't need to stop by his place to heal his servant? All he said you had to do was just say the word. Matthew and Luke say you were amazed. What does it mean that you were surprised, Jesus? What was the look on your face that day? What was happening inside your head, Jesus, when you looked at the rich young man and Mark says you looked at him and loved him? Or the widow who lost her son and Luke tells us, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Or when you met the two blind men outside of Jericho and Matthew says, in pity, you touched their eyes. Can we safely assume that you're always thinking about empathy and compassion and love for people, Jesus, especially people who are in crisis? What was going on in your mind when you saw those money changers and those animal sacrifice salesmen desecrating your father's house of prayer? Many people would love to peer into your mind that day, Jesus. A rare instance we all believe you threw a little bit of a temper tantrum. We see you flip tables, drive everyone out, and John likes to point out that you cracked a whip. What was going on in your mind that day, Jesus, in the temple? We're not given much to go on. Did you get angry? Were you annoyed? Were you frustrated? Some of us are really curious, Jesus. What was going on in your head in Gethsemane? On the one hand, Mark tells us you were greatly distressed and troubled and praying to your father about the cup you were about to drink. But on the other hand, you returned to find your three best friends asleep instead of caring a lick about what you were going through. What was going on in your mind, Jesus, that night? Were you disappointed? Were you were you annoyed? Were you scared? You must have had a lot on your mind, Jesus, to be so anxious that actual drops of blood came out of your pores instead of sweat, according to Luke. But the question I have for you today, Jesus, is what was happening inside your head when messengers from Bethany came and said that one of your good friends was dying? How did you feel when you heard death was at your friend's doorsteps? What was on your mind when you saw his grave? John tells us that you wept. But was there more to it? John doesn't elaborate on how you knew Lazarus, other than repeatedly telling us you loved him, leading many to believe that the two of you were close friends. We're not told how you met. Or if Lazarus was a follower of yours, but we can safely assume Lazarus was. But aside from maybe a cameo appearance in a parable in Luke co-starred by a rich man that was sent to Hades, this is the only appearance of Lazarus in any of the Gospels. 
We're told that you heard about Lazarus' condition from his two sisters, Mary and Martha. These two actually get more screen time than their more recognizable brother. Whether it be an episode where Martha is busy in the kitchen serving everyone lunch and Mary is more preoccupied listening to you teach Jesus, or maybe later on when Mary uses perfume to anoint your feet and washes it with her hair, much to Judas's dismay, these two women are the ones who get your attention. Their brother is sick and on his deathbed. They track you down interrupting your day-to-day activities to clue you in on something tragic unfolding in their family. Interestingly, we think that they asked you to come heal Lazarus, and as often the case, Jesus, sometimes we think we know the story when, in fact, Mary and Martha's message was simply, Lord, he whom you love is dying. But out of camaraderie and love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, you came, you detoured from what you were currently doing you headed towards their village in Bethany. And we're told that you arrive in Bethany actually four days too late, but this was not by accident or bad luck. You had purposely remained two extra days where you were, and by the time you got to Bethany, four days had elapsed since word had gotten to you about your friend's illness. Lazarus has been buried in his tomb long enough now for everyone to consider him truly dead. In Jewish religious folklore, it was believed that a person's spirit hovered over the body for three days, meaning that after four days, Lazarus is believed to be truly gone. Martha is the first to hear of your arrival in the town. Leaving behind relatives, friends, and others mourning with her and her sister, she exits for a one-on-one conversation with you. She's the first to speak, and she speaks from the heart. A heart that has been torn apart and in disarray. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. How did you feel, Jesus, after she told you that? What was going on in your head? She's bewildered. She's disappointed. But she has faith in you, knowing that not only could you have solved her problem, but even now, despite everything that has happened to her brother, whatever you ask of God, God will grant to you. She hasn't lost hope. Martha knows that you have a special connection with God. Even if she can't quite put her finger on it, she has strong faith despite suffering a tragic loss. Martha has not given up on you even though she's likely saddened by your tardiness, Jesus. You respond by telling her that her brother will rise again, which Martha believes will happen one day in the distant future. She's a good churchgoer. She knows her theology. She knows about the end times and the final judgment. But what you truly meant is that death all but flees when it comes into proximity to you, and you're about to have a conversation with it concerning your friend. You tell her, I am the resurrection and the life. Death does not have the last laugh or the final say. Death trembles when it hears you coming, Jesus. And death just took her brother and your friend, and it's about to come into contact with the resurrection and the life, not sometime in the distant future, but actually in a manner of moments in full view of everyone. 
this flies past Martha's head for the time being. She leaves to inform her sister of your arrival. Martha tries to tell Mary secretly the teacher is here and is calling for you. However, Mary is unable to leave her home without attracting the attention of everyone gathered there. And they follow her out as she heads out to have a conversation with you. What was going on inside your head now that you see Mary coming to speak with you? When you saw that crowd of people coming with her, what was going on in your mind, Jesus? Mary begins and sounds much like her sister. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, except the conversation with Mary is cut short by a sudden wave of emotions. She breaks down in your presence with grief over the loss of her brother. It likely didn't help that everyone else is weeping around you. And you see their teary eyes and their sadness and loss. And John goes out of his way to describe what is happening inside you. He says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The ye old King James Version says he groaned in his spirit. We're told that something stirred inside you, Jesus. And I'm trying to figure out what it is. Bible translators and scholars are puzzled as to what this reaction was. This deeply moved and groaning in the original Greek is not easily translated. It can literally mean to snort. In other words, Jesus snorted in his spirit and was greatly troubled. Many ancient Greek texts actually utilize this to describe horses riding into battle or running a race. But for humans, it's reserved to convey outrage and fury and anger. The flaring of the nostrils like some old-fashioned cartoon character comically fuming with rage and frustration comes to my mind. This means that there's actually another emotion at play in this familiar story. One that usually goes under the radar in our English translations. You were upset before you started weeping, weren't you, Jesus? You were outraged. Not at Mary and Martha. Not at the crowds in attendance that morning, unlike at Jairus' house, if you remember. In fact, it is directed at something else entirely. The reason that you were there that day, Jesus, you are outraged at death itself and the destruction it brings. We see firsthand that sin's destruction and marring of your very good creation actually outrages and saddens you, its creator. When you saw what the powers of chaos and death had caused, when you see the tears falling from their eyes, when you notice the pain it caused Lazarus' Lazarus's loved ones standing outside that tomb, when you heard the wailing and the weeping as you were taking in the entire scene, you didn't simply weep, you angrily wept. These are bitter tears. You angrily wept because his, your creation has been tainted by sin. This was never part of the divine plan you concocted with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Things are in disarray, and you are getting exposed to that in an intimate, personal way. 
It's not like you have been oblivious to it up to this point. You've seen it everywhere you've gone. You've seen the sick, the demon-possessed, the disabled, the poor, the marginalized, and more. All the symptoms of the same problem. But now, with this family, and with this situation, and with this person, it hits you harder. This scene at the cemetery, the evidence of death, all as a result of the fall, together produce outrage in the Son of God even as you move steadily to remedy the situation. That's why you're keen to find the tomb. That's why you ask where it is. You want to confront death head on, face to face. Combined with his eventual weeping, a boiling rage is evoked in the person of the Son of God outside Lazarus's tomb. You are outraged at death itself, at being the culprit behind today's tragedy, and you want to have a conversation. And so internalizing your own rage, you ask the group for Lazarus' resting place. We've known since the beginning that you have been headed to that destination. Earlier you told the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I go to awaken him. We have been anticipating this moment for some time. To see you awaken your friend. And the conversations with Mary and Martha were simply detours. Yet before that happens, before this story is resolved, before you can take out your anger against death, something happens. The group tells you, Lord, come and see. And then the unexpected occurs. Something rarely we see you do, Jesus. You wept. In other places in the Gospels, we are told that you were brought to tears for the city of Jerusalem as you lament its future destruction. But here, in this place, in John's Gospel, this sorrow is much more personable and intimate. Here, in the presence of Mary and Martha and everyone, you wept. Jesus wept. The Son of God shed tears. You cried despite knowing full well how this story was going to end. Perhaps this is a glimpse into your mysterious unity with human nature. That seeing other people crying, it elicited in you something, a similar emotional reaction. Perhaps that's the case. Or maybe your weeping was a sign, a sign of your love for Lazarus' family. You were communicating to everyone, but particularly Mary and Martha that day, that you deeply cared about their pain. In fact, all the bystanders who witnessed all of this say as much when they say, see how he loved him. It wasn't beneath you to cry with him. It was not embarrassing for you to be seen sobbing. It was not a sign of weakness for you, the Son of God, to express remorse and grief. It was a sign that you saw them, a sign that you heard them. It was an indication that you were present with them in their pain, you were willing to join them where they were despite knowing the resolution to the story. You attached yourself to their sadness. You grieved alongside them despite being the resurrection and the life. And with some sort of combination of fury and sadness, you journeyed to the entrance of Lazarus's cave-like tomb, not unlike what some will be doing for your tomb on Easter morning. And you request for the stone covering the entrance to be removed. However, Martha protests. After this much time, there's bound to be a foul odor. But you're not easily skittish, are you, Jesus? The aroma of death doesn't scare you. You remind Martha of your promise to her that she'll see the power of God if she fully trusts in you. And Martha does. 
the stone is removed and everyone holds their breath. No one has ever seen anything like what you're doing today. This is ludicrous. This is scandalous. This is preposterous. But so it is sometimes with you, Lord. You approach the now unblocked entrance and you offer a simple prayer. The prayer, you say, is actually unnecessary as there is no disruption in communication between you and your heavenly Father. This prayer is for us, for everyone there, but also for us, that we can see you speaking to your heavenly Father. And then you speak to Lazarus. But in a way, you actually speak to death itself who is holding Lazarus hostage. You speak a commandment that death must obey. Lazarus, come out. And John tells us the man who had died came out. Simple as that. We've been looking at doing what Jesus did, DWJD, for the past several weeks now. We've been considering how to incorporate the things Jesus did in our lifestyles and routines, like discipling like him, like being present like him. Last week we explored resting like Jesus rested from our work. But this week I want to challenge us to consider weeping like Jesus wept. It is something that he did, something we may never imagine incorporating into our lives, but perhaps we ought to. To weep like Jesus wept is to communicate to others you love them. As I mentioned to you all before, maybe the most Jesus thing you can do is to be present with someone. But allow me to add a subtle nuance to that right now. Maybe the most Jesus thing you can do for another person is weep with them. Join them in their sorrow. Share in their grief. People may want a shoulder to cry on, but they may also be looking for someone, anyone really, to emotionally be involved in their situation as they are. To see tears in another human being's eyes. For someone to validate their emotions by participating in it with them. This may look like teardrops. And some of you this morning need to be told it is okay to cry. Crying is near to godliness based on this story as far as I'm concerned. But this may take other forms. Weeping with others may look like an encouraging message you send. A needed phone call. A hot meal. Something else. What does it look like for you to show other people that you notice and hear them as they're undergoing a painful situation? What does it look like for you to weep like Jesus wept? But to weep like Jesus wept is to mourn also for what breaks God's heart. To stand in solidarity with God regarding the things that have distorted his creation. To look out at the world and see the consequences that sin has had on God's creation and to lament. It is to groan and be outraged like God about the things that are perversions of his creation. And while death is but one example, the powers of chaos and darkness take on many forms, but some are less obvious than others. Whether it be evidence of sin or injustice or something else that pulls on God's heartstrings, can we weep like Jesus in response to evidence of chaos and darkness in this world? It may start in our own hearts, dealing with the sin that lives there, the vestiges of darkness lingering inside us, the remnants of sin's prior hold on our lives. This may entail inviting Jesus to cleanse us, 
to make us new, to give us the grace to renounce our former allegiance to sin and pledge our fidelity to God, to cease being an obstacle to God's work in this world and instead join him to point the light at the darkness and let the light of the world shine there. It may look like tangibly allying with God and combating against the forces of chaos that exist in this world. This may entail supporting and partnering with people or organizations God is using right now in our time and our place in history to bring light to this dark world. While we lament, we are also called to action. May our time, energy, finances, and speech be used to promote and foster the expansion of God's kingdom in this world, not be a hindrance or a roadblock. As we weep, like Jesus wept. We do not do so void of hope because Jesus did not weep without hope. Nowhere in this story does Jesus fall into despair. He becomes enraged but is not overcome by despair. He becomes sorrowful but is not overcome by despair. We do not weep with people or grieve the distortions of this world empty of hope. Always remember that Jesus kept knowing that hope existed and he still wept. He knew hope existed because he was hope and he still is hope, church. While we do momentarily weep because of the scars of sin in this world, we also know that Jesus has come to heal those scars. He has come to make all things new, and he is making all things new, starting in the hearts of men and women. Jesus has come to cleanse the world of sin's presence and tyranny by inviting all people to be in fellowship with him, not in the garden where it all began, but actually somewhere new, a better place, a new heaven and a new earth where sin and death and chaos are forever vanquished and no longer a threat to those who belong to him. And the stings of death will be all but faint memories when we stand before the one who wept for the world and decided he would not simply weep in vain, but that he would actually do something about it. Jesus was outraged and wept long before that day in Bethany. That is why he came. That's why he lived and he suffered and he died and he rose again and he's coming again all because he wept and refused to let darkness and sin have the final word. And so while we weep, we do not do so without hope. We have full assurance knowing that God has wept first and God has been busy working so that one day, no, we no longer weep ever again, that we'll have one day where he'll be the first to wipe every tear from our eye. We may weep now, but there will come a day where we never weep again. I feel like I'm just talking to myself right there. Come on, church. That's the good news. That's why I'm grateful Jesus wept. Are you grateful, church? He was weeping, which means that he cared enough to save you and me. And I worship and I pledge my life to Jesus because he wept. And I am thankful that he is still weeping that Jesus is still active in this world, righting the wrongs and combating injustice while creation and ourselves groan in labor pains, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. What is going on 
and your head this morning? What does it look like for you to weep like Jesus? Is it a demonstration of love for others? An act of solidarity with God's agenda in this world? Or is it worship and gratitude to a God that cares enough to take on our human nature, live a full human life, suffer an excruciating human death, all for the sake of you and me? Weep like Jesus wept in full assurance and hope, but weep like Jesus wept.